right, well, we are starting a new book, the book of Joel, minor prophet in the Old Testament. It's going to be after Psalms, right after Hosea. I remember the first time I ever went to church, and they said, go to this book. And I'm like, I'm holding it. I, I don't know what you're talking about. So if you need to, look at somebody next to you, steal that page number, or look at the table of contents. You can get to the book of Joel. Your neighbor will help you get there. I know how it feels. Well, <clears throat> it's hard to date this book. It's hard to figure out exactly when it was written. But we know it's around 800 B.C. That is 2,800 years ago. This book was penned by Joel. To put that in perspective, the city of Rome, not the Roman Empire, the city of Rome was founded in 753 B.C. That's another 50 years before they even start breaking ground on the city of Rome that would become the great Roman Empire. And so if we leave the first century in 1 Corinthians and we roll back to 800 B.C. in the southern country of Judah, we also see some other important things happening around that time period. The earliest Upanishads, you're like, what in the world is that? It's the beginning of the Vandata philosophy. You're like, I still am not tracking. Good. Hinduism is just barely starting. You know, why is that relevant to us? Because today we're going to talk about generations. We're going to talk about truth. We're going to talk about tragedy in our lives. But if you are one of the few people here that grew up in the 60s and you remember uh, the Beatles and they went to Hinduism because they were, quote, unquote, an older religion and Christianity was new. The faith was already firmly established for millennia before Hinduism is even getting off the ground. The Roman Empire has not even started. The city isn't even founded. And here we are deep in biblical truth. The northern kingdom, the southern kingdom already separated. Solomon has passed away. David is long gone. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are millennia past. We have the true faith, the ancient faith that goes all the way back to Adam and Eve in the very beginning. And so this is a new age law, a lie, excuse me, a new age lie that Christianity and the Bible are just something new that just got conjured up recently. Nonsense. Our faith is firmly engrafted and engrafted with God from the foundations of the world. It's going to be important we talk about this because we're going to talk about generational learning. We're going to talk about scriptural truth. And we're going to see that, like we always say around here, there is nothing new under the sun. So what's going on here in the nation of Judah in 800 B.C.? There is a dark cloud on the horizon, except as it is getting closer and closer to Judah, it is not actually clouds. It is not rain. It is a swarm, a gargantuan, trillion-deep swarm of locusts that is coming across as the winds are pushing them from the Sudan region of Africa They're coming up into the nation of Israel, and they are going to eat every single living thing, every single tree, every single brush, every single piece of grass. They are going to eat everything, and that's what we're going to pick up in the book of Joel. But let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, we we thank you that this is no new truth, that you are teaching us these things 
that you have always taught. I thank you for the Old Testament. I thank you for the revivals of Israel because they show us, Lord, that we too can pick this nation up out of the dirt and we relearn the old truths and apply them to our lives. So we pray that you would lead us this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read verses 1 through 4 together. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Hear this, you elders, and give ear, all you inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or even in the days of your fathers? Tell your children about it. Let your children tell their children and their children another generation. What the chewing locust left, the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the crawling locust has eaten. And what the crawling locust has left, the consuming locust has eaten. Now, locusts <clears throat> are like giant grasshoppers. And it's not uncommon uh, for them as they grow from immaturity there in the Sudan area. That's about central Africa. And then the winds blow them wherever they go. Sometimes they go to the west, sometimes to the east, sometimes to the northeast, over to Israel. That, that happens from time to time. But notice what Joel a prophet in which we know nothing about, don't know his background. We know his dad's name's Pethiel, no idea who he is. It's, it's hard for us even to figure out exactly when this time is, but we know he's a contemporary of Elisha, and we know he's around that 800 B.C. area. Now, he says here to the elders, to the old, those that have been around, have you ever seen anything like this? No, this is the worst plague they have ever seen. This isn't a regular occurrence. This isn't a common tragedy. Now, we are divorced, culturally speaking, from 800 B.C. in a couple different areas. Number one, in the United States of America, we have lost our familial ties. We're not teaching things generationally. You know, that, that is not common. That has happened in the last 100 years. I would argue in the last 60 years that has happened. And you guys really messed this country up in the 1960s. I say that facetiously, of course. You know, don't trust anyone over the age of 25, you were taught. We've been breaking all these um, family um, chains that bind us together in traditions. And there's a variety of reasons for that. <clears throat> but the nation of Israel is built on these family ties. Their heritage is how they inherit the land. The second area that we can't relate is we are no longer an agricultural society. That is also a recent event. We may think, oh, that changed millennia ago. That changed within the last 75 years in the United States. And it's been a slow, gradual ch change. There was a time not too long ago when 75% of Americans were employed in agriculture. They were in small family farms, sometimes larger farms. We all had to work to eat. But because of industrialization and mechanization, less than 4% of the population today is engaged in agriculture. I mean, that's 4%. In 800 BC, all the way up until the 1800s, it was 90%, 90%. So a big change. So we have to rebuild some, some uh, framework there to understand. When you have 90% of your culture is engaged in agriculture and it is wiped out overnight, all the plants are gone, your harvest is gone, the seeds are gone, what you're going to replant with are gone, the animals are going to starve, there is no pasture, it's gone, everything is gone. It, what would be the relation today? 
you know, we have some economic hardship, but usually you shift from one thing to another. If you invested in crypto, you might be switching it over right now. If you invested in the stock market, you might be moving it into physical assets. Imagine it is overnight gone. There's nowhere to turn to. There's no other market to enter in. It's gone. Your savings are gone. Your 401k is gone. The businesses are shutting down. You lost your job, your savings, the bank where it's at. It's all gone overnight. That is what's going on here in the nation of Israel. Now, I told you again about this generational training, and we're going to rebuild some of those bonds here this morning, and we're going to see how important it was in the nation of Israel. For example, back in Exodus chapter 12, they are taught to teach their children about Passover, and you shall observe this thing as an ordinance for you and your sons forever. It will come to pass when you come to the land which the Lord will give you, just as he promised, that you shall keep this service. And it shall be when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? That you shall say, it is the Passover sacrifice of the Lord, who passed over the houses of the children of Israel in Egypt, and, he, and when he struck the Egyptians and delivered our households. So the people bowed their heads in worship. So they're going to teach about the Passover. What else are they going to teach about? Far more important is called the Shema. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, when it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. But that's not it. He continues in verse 6, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So this is not going away. The nation of Israel is taught to train their children, their grandchildren. They're to look up to the elders. You know, there's another reason for this. If you wanted to learn something, let's say in the early 1990s, and you heard a rumor, your, your uncle was around and he told you some weird truth. What do we do in the 2000s? Well, you, you whip out your phone and you, internet, you fact check it right there. Back in the 1990s when I grew up, you trusted your uncle. Whatever he said, that's, that's what it was. And he could tell you the biggest fib on the planet and you just accepted it and you passed it on as a, as a tale. <clears throat> Well, back in the nation of Israel and in our society for thousands of years, many people couldn't even read. So how did you learn that trade? How did you learn that thing? You were not going to live if you didn't learn from your elders. You were not going to advance. Knowledge was going to decrease if you didn't learn everything you possibly could from your parents and their parents before you. You know, yes, things have changed dramatically. We need to rebuild these bonds P personally, in our families, and in the church, and I would say even in the United States of America. Family tradition is a necessity. Scriptural family tradition is a necessity. Now, the book of Joel, here in the first 14 verses that we're going to study in today, are talking about a local tragedy. When we come back next week and start in verse 15, we're going to talk about the day of the Lord, future tragedies that are coming. But I'm going to give you an example of how we have lost tradition, even in the church. 
Does God cause tragedy or does he allow them? Is he able to stop suffering, but he's unwilling to do it? Is he unable to stop suffering, but he wants to? Does Satan cause tragedy? Is tragedy our judgment for sin? You would think after 2,800 years, we would have the answer to this, but many of you are like, well, that's, these are great questions. Well, the answer is found in Scripture, and it has been fleshed out by many theologians over millennia. <coughs> Excuse me. All the way back to Abraham. And we're going to answer that question today, don't you worry. And we're going to go to what different people think and what the Bible says. But when you learn it, teach it to your kids. Why are so many children today, young people, going off to college and then they're losing their faith? Because the faith that they've been taught is not worth following. They are not learning the deep truths and the history of civilization through this ancient text, the revealed word of God, from the very foundations of human creation. They're being taught to show up to church because God likes it. Don't worry, no matter what you do, God's going to forgive you. You should give some money to the church. It'll make you happy and wealthy. But what happens when their spouse at 20-something years old gets cancer? What happens when they lose a child? What happens when the economy just doesn't work the way we want it to? What happens when they're hit by a drunk driver? What happens when there's real tragedy? How do we deal with it? We're going to learn those things today because the Bible has an answer for all these things. And Joel is telling them in the nation of Israel who are about to starve to death, remember this forever and teach it to your children because we need to be looking to God. God has the answers. God will direct us. Now let's read verses 5 through 7 as it continues. Awake, you drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you drinkers of wine, because of the new wine, for it has been cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come up against my land, strong and without number. His teeth are the teeth of a lion and his fangs of a fierce lion. He has laid waste my vine and ruined my fig tree. He has stopped, stripped it bare and thrown it away. Its branches are made white. Now, when he's talking to the drunkards here, and he's going to be speaking to a few different sections of society, you could really sum this up of those that desire pleasure above all else. There is no more wine, period. It's gone. The, the grapes are gone. The vines, the grape uh, bushes are gone. It's all disappeared. Overnight, it's gone. Locusts, when they're hungry enough, they strip the bark off of the trees, and then the trees themselves die. And I grew up in the San Ynez Valley area. There's wineries all over the place. And some of those uh, wine vines are really old. They really gnarled around 20, 30, 40-year-old um, wine bushes. And they're just gone. You can't bring that back overnight. So these guys are living what they call in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, the pride of life. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. I'm, we are so spoiled in the United States of America in the 21st century. It's like, what type of meat do we want to have? Do we want the filet mignon or do we want the T-bone? Now, if you're hungry for breakfast this morning, I apologize. But, I mean, we eat three, four, five, sixteen 16 times a day. We pick our diets. 
We have so much food. We are the most obese country in the planet. We are so blessed by God. And imagine it was all gone. You know, if we were connected to our ancestors here in the United States of America in 1933 at the height of the Great Depression, starvation was rampant. To have a meal was a huge deal. That's not too long ago, folks. Many of our grandfathers, our, our parents, they lived through that, and now we are so spoiled. Here, it has all dis disappeared. In the nation of Israel, there is no more wine, no more oil, no more uh, steaks, no more movies, no more AC, no more electricity. Complete collapse of their entire economy wiped out overnight. And when that happens here in the United States of America, and it, and it will, I can tell you that not even as a Bible scholar. I can tell you that as a student of history, that every empire eventually collapses. And boy, we're trying to speed up the process, aren't we? I could tell you that. Who do they turn to? To God. They're so busy going on their vacations now, going on their trips, taking their kids to their soccer games, their baseball games, going to university shopping, going to the movies, going to the theme parks. So busy, they don't even want to talk to God. They don't want to hear from God. They just want to complain when they lose a little. They don't get the big Christmas bonus they liked. But one day, catastrophe will strike, whether personally or nationally. And where will they fill? They will fill the churches, just like they did on 9-11. On September 12th, the churches were full. They were packed. Nothing has changed. Everything is the same. But we have this pride of life, these drunkards in their day, those that seek after pleasure in our day. We cannot have this pride of life. The first thing that we have to overcome in tragedy is that we believe that we are equal to God. Why do you say that, Mike? That's because I don't believe that. Well, you believe that you demand of God. You, you have to be healthy. You have to be wealthy. Everything has to go easy or God doesn't like you. And many people, maybe not you, but many people think that if God doesn't do those things, then he's not worthy of their worship. Who are you speaking to? He is God in the heavens. Speaking of the minor prophets in Obadiah, verse 3, it says, The pride of your heart has deceived you, you who dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? How is it that an entire nation was completely brought to its knees by a little tiny bug? Well, the United States of America was brought to its knees by a little tiny bug. Another word for a virus. Boy, did we have the pride of life. Now, I don't say this without fully understanding its uh, in what I'm implying here. But this is a cold. A cold, a cold virus, a deadly one. A deadly one. I know people who passed away from it. So for those who want to say that it is nothing, you are wrong. For those that want to say it's the end of the world, you are also wrong. There are many that had it and nothing came of it. And there were many that were strong and healthy that were taken out by it. Brought to our knees, humbled by God. Oh, the pride of life that we think we deserve all these things. When we come before the true and living God, we realize that we are owed nothing. Now, to speak about this specific punishment from God. It was a punishment from God. This is a direct judgment on the people of Israel. 
We're going to look at some scriptures as to why that is. But we need to understand that not all tragedies are punishment from God. And we're going to look at scriptures that support that as well. We need to realize that just because something tragic happened in your life doesn't mean that you deserved it. If you got what you deserved, it w- we would all be wiped out immediately. We, none of us gets what we deserve. We're going to talk about tragedy. I just want to make sure you're really listening all the way to the end. Because I give you the answer right up, you'd be like, okay, got it, and you're out. At least if you think like I do. So let's continue now in verses 8 through 12. It says, Lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the husband of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering have been cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests mourn who minister to the Lord. The field is wasted. The land mourns for the grain is ruined. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Be ashamed, you farmers. Wail, you vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is perished. The vine has dried up. The fig tree has withered. The pomegranate tree, the palm tree also, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are withered. Surely joy has withered away from the sons of men. I mean, this is a deep, deep mourning. When it says in verse 8, lament like a virgin girded with sackcloth, they're like, oh, okay, that's a, that doesn't sound good. What they're talking about is when a woman has been betrothed to her husband for that year that they're um, waiting for the marriage, the um, bride price is paid. It's paid out immediately, the dowry. <clears throat> and then the, then the future husband, he dies <coughs> before the marriage is even consummated. Imagine what that would do to your families. Imagine what that would do to you. Now, that is the kind of weeping here, deep, deep sorrow. We're not, we're not talking, oh, I, I feel a little bad about this. We're talking about my whole life is over in front of my eyes. Why, God, why did this happen? Where does tragedy come from? One well, Amos chapter 3, verse 6, it says, If a trumpet is blown in the city, will not the people be afraid? If there is a calamity in a city, will the Lord have done it? Why do I bring that up? You see, God is in control of all things. This is going to be important because we're going to talk about different viewpoints about why people think certain tragedies happen and why they don't. We need to be crystal clear on who God is. Now, this has already been sorted out over millennia. We're just relearning these ancient truths. There is not an atom that moves without God's permission. He is in absolute authority and control of all things. Nothing happens without his permission. In Daniel chapter 4, verse 35, it says, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, no one can restrain his hand or say to him, What have you done? Amazing. We are not owed anything. He is in control. Now, God told the nation of Israel they were going to get punished if they didn't follow his ways, if they went into idolatry, if they didn't keep the law. You remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you were here on Wednesday nights, it was a big, long chapter, cursing after cursing after cursing after cursing. I'm only going to read four verses of it. Deuteronomy chapter 8, 28, verses 40 through 44. It says, 
you shall have olive trees throughout all your territory, but you shall not anoint yourself with oil, for your oil, for your olives shall drop off. You shall beget sons and daughters, but they shall not be yours, for they shall be shall go into captivity. Locusts shall consume all your trees and the produce of your land. The alien who is among you shall rise higher and higher above you, and you shall come down lower and lower. He shall lend to you, but you shall not lend to him. He shall be the head, and you shall be the tail. Now, those things were written hundreds of years before, and now they're happening right in front of their eyes. So what we have a mistake of doing now is we take the nation of Israel, the promise of the nation of Israel, and we apply them to the United States of America. That does not work. Israel is a unique sign and symbol to all the world. And they will continue to be. They're not replaced. All the way through the tribulation, when God supernaturally preserves the 144,000 all the way through the end of the tribulation. We'll share some more about that. If you get really interested in that, you can listen to our studies on Revelation. You can go to alwaysbeready.com and you can learn a lot about that. What we're talking about today is tragedy because you're like, Mike, you just told me that God does everything. And you just told me that God does punish sin sometimes. And I want to know, has all the bad things that happened in my life, are they from me? Did I cause them? Did God allow them? Does God hate me? Like, well, what, what, what is going on? Well, let's look at the viewpoints that are in the world today. The atheist says that God is either able to stop tragedy, but he's unwilling, making him an angry, terrible God. Or he is unable to save those and stop sufferings, and therefore he's a weak God, and they throw him out because they make man to be equal with God. Now, let's look at what some believers believe. Some believers believe that God has created natural laws and that these natural laws just cycle and that these weather tragedies, these earthquakes, they just happen and that God will intervene only on occasion when he wants to. I, I call this the loaded dice belief, that God rolls the dice, but that they're loaded, that he knows what's going to happen. Some believe that all disasters are God's divine judgment on a select group of people. That does not work. That does not work. Because you can, as a student of history, you will see that some nations are blessed that are evil and some that are cursed that are righteous. We'll call this the Job's friend philosophy. You remember Job's friends? Everything that was happening to Job was Job's fault in the book of Job. But that, we know that's not the case. Job was a righteous man. That there is a side belief on this is that Satan causes all disasters or man causes all disasters or the Illuminati are sowing seeds in the sky and causing disasters. I call this the boogeyman concept. That, 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 no, because the book of Job tells us that Satan can't even do anything without God's permission. Because remember, God holds every atom. Nothing moves in all of his creation without his permission. In Colossians, it says that through Jesus, all things exist that consist they, are through him. Or number five, God is 100% sovereign and that not an atom or even Satan moves without his permission. But this means that we must remove the pride of life that we saw in 1 John because God is working out a greater glory that we cannot understand and that when we go through trial and tragedy 
and devastation, we realize we are owed nothing. And God humbles humanity and shows us that you are going to die. You are going to die and you are going to live forever. Your soul will live on from eternity to everlasting to everlasting. And if we just continue to live in comfort, without tragedy, without trial, without suffering, we would not even be concerned with heaven and we would believe that this is it. This is not even the starting point. This life is but a vapor and it shall soon be passed. And we need to trust God whose ways are beyond our ways and beyond our finding out. Now, we read verses 13 and 14. It says, gird yourselves and lament you priests. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come, lie all night in sackcloth. You who minister to my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Consecrate a fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land into the house of the Lord your God and cry out to the Lord. Pain, sorrow, anguish, suffering, death, they are all a part of life. It may seem as there is no rhyme or reason. It may seem as though everything is by chance or that the dice are loaded. It may seem as though God has set natural laws and just let them go and he doesn't break them. All those things can be true at the same time while at the same time knowing that he is 100% sovereign and in control of all things. Knowing that in us is working a greater purpose because for the believer, the Bible says all things work together for the good. Even your cancer, even your back problems, your dementia, even that tragic accident, even the loss of a loved one at a young or old age, they can all work together for the good, but only through the Lord Jesus Christ and his divine redemption on the cross. What is the proof of God's love for us that he gave his only begotten son? The question for the Christian is, do we know how to suffer? Here in verses 13 and 14, there's not even any more sacrifices. There's no lamb offerings. There's no oil offerings, no heave offerings, no bread offerings, nothing. It's, it's gone. The temple is shut down. Why would God do that? Doesn't he want to be glorified? Because he's showing us the things of this world. They're not that important. They're going to pass away. <coughs> the Lord destroyed his own temple multiple times because man started looking at the glory of the temple instead of the glory of God. And when we start looking at our own pride, what we have accomplished, what we have made, who we are. It is amazing to me that, you know, I can eat half of a pecan pie and then I can go to the gym and, I man, I feel like I'm on top of the world. But then I get one muscle that gets out of order. Pull one muscle and I am crying to my wife like a big baby. Oh, honey, I'm hurt. Humbling to realize that in my pride, I'm not really as tough as I think I am. One day, if I keep eating the way that I'm eating, we know how I'm going to die. Do we not? It's like, Lord, rapture me soon. A lot of the reasons for a lot of the things that happen to us is because we're dumb. But we have free will. And God allows us to make choices. And how do we choose to do those things? And I say, do you know how to suffer? Do you know how to show God the glory in your anguish? We will all suffer anguish here 
the priests are to call a sacred assembly. They're to suffer together. Does the church know how to suffer? Does the church know how to glorify God in the tragedy? Does the church know how to look at the all-powerful God and say, not thy will, my will, but your will be done? But let's get down to the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is, is God punishing me for what I have done? Well, Job began to think the same thing. Because Job was a righteous man. He was a follower of God. And then God came out of nowhere and allowed Satan, by permission, to destroy his family, destroy his children, his business, his savings. It was all gone. And then his health. And then he suffered. And then finally, after chapters and chapters of Job's terrible friends, telling him all kinds of stuff, you did it, you're a sinner, it's the Illuminati, it's the Democrats that are in charge, everything is everybody else's fault. No, God is in the heavens, and he sits on the throne. And this is how God speaks to Job in response in chapter 38. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know, or who stretched the line upon it, to what were its foundations fastened, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Now, I wanted to put even more text, but we would just be sitting there reading Job 38. Because he continues, did you make the animals? Did you put the monsters in the sea? Did you create the mountains, the stars, the constellations in the stars? Who put them there? God says, I did. Who are you? Who are you to even question me? Who are you to come and talk to me, to demand that you be treated well, to demand that your finances are good, demand good health, demand a long life, demand a loving spouse? You just demand all these things of God. That's the pride of life spoken up in 1 John. God owes you nothing. He is God. Well, that's a mean God. I don't want to worship him. Do you know who you're talking to? Now, this same great, all-powerful, almighty God gave his only begotten son that you shall not perish but have everlasting life. To pay the punishment for your sins, you deserve hell. He gives you eternity everlasting to everlasting. And so, yes, he will allow you to suffer. He will allow you to be crushed under the weight of life so that you realize that this isn't anything. This is just a launching off part of millennia and millennia in his presence and almighty glory. In Psalm 115, verse 3, it says, but our God is in the heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And I am so grateful that he is a just, righteous, holy, perfect, and loving God. He doesn't express his love to you and your good health. He doesn't express his good love, his loving nature, to you and making sure that everybody's healthy and wealthy. He expresses his love in sacrificing his son that you have eternity in paradise in his presence, eating with him at the marriage supper of the lamb. And none of us will go there and say, Lord, why did you do that? I don't understand when we were in his presence. Lord, why did you take my spouse? Why did you let me go old and die? When you're in his presence, you will know. But what does our Lord Jesus say about this? about tragedies that come. In Luke chapter 13, verse 1 and 5, it says there were present at that season some who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. They were killed. Verse 2, And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose 
that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? This is the question you've been asking. Is God punishing me? I tell you no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse sinners than all the men who dwelt in Jerusalem? What's the message, y'all? Verse 5, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is your suffering compared to an everlasting fire where there is weeping and gnashing and teeth cast away from the presence of God? If we need but a moment, a hundred-year life of suffering to remind us of millennia of paradise with God, or millennia upon millennia upon millennia of suffering with the, in hell. What is our complaining to the Lord? He is God. Now, this, this subject that we're talking about, why do tragedies happen? This has been answered for millennia. And because we have separated ourselves from our ancestors, from our elders, from our traditions, we are relearning these things. Now, that's okay. Just like Josiah found the law found the word of God in the temple and they rededicated the nation. We too can rebuild this nation by having this word of God written on the tablets of our heart, by sharing a faith that is worth sharing to the rest of the world. That is ancient, far more ancient than Islam or Hinduism or Zen Buddhism or any other cultism that's out there. The true and living God is revealing himself through his son and through the word. Now, if there's anybody that would have the opportunity to say, well, God, you're just not a loving God. Therefore, I will not worship you. It was Job. Job is the one person that we had that could have said, okay, here we go. Let's see how this happens. And after speaking with God, God closes out his saying here in chapter 40. And the Lord says this, verse 1 through 5. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? He who rebukes God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, this is his answer, Behold, I am vile. If anybody could speak up and say, this is, I don't deserve this, it was God. Or excuse me, Job. Job could have said that, but no, he knows. He's speaking to the Lord. He doesn't, he's not even done. Behold, I am vile. I'm vile. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand over my mouth once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yes, twice, but I will proceed no further. That is the fanciest, most polite New King James Version way of saying, I'm shutting up now. Job could have, he could have laid it all out there, but when his response to hearing about God and how great God is and his creation, his response is, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and be quiet because I am lowly, a small vile thing elders we need to teach others how to glorify god we need to teach people who god is so we have a proper understanding of him and in our relationship with him that we need to repent communally of the pride of life and put god in his proper place put the word of god in his proper place there are people even now they are living in sin and they don't care because it's like oh yeah the grace of god you are displeasing God, and he is in control of all things. 
we have the ancient truths of God's word. They have never changed. It is one fleet, uh, full, complete revelation. And not only must we repent, we must share this truth of God, of why tragedy happens, who's in charge, and that we must, as Jesus said, likewise repent and turn to him. This is the message the whole world needs to hear. This is the message the whole, all the countries on the planet need to hear. And every nation, I pray, starting with the United States of America, needs to repent and accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And we need to go into the whole world and teach the gospel. But how can we teach the gospel if we don't know it ourselves? No, tragedies are not an accident. But they're not also God's judgment. They are a part of life. They reveal to us that life is fickle, that it is not promised, and that suffering and anguish and pain are just a much, just a much a part of life as rejoicing and feasting and thanksgiving. Let's go before the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. Nothing more, nothing less. As we focus on your omnipotence, your power, Lord, your omnipresence, your everywhere, control of all things. Help us to decrease in our life. Help, you to, help us to put you in your proper place. I'm just astounded that you give us the free will to put these things in the wrong order. I'm astounded that you give us free will to shout your name and praise. And I pray, Lord, that as we live life together, that we rejoice with those who rejoice and that we weep with those who weep, Lord that we learn to do these things together, that we don't look to the pride of this world, we don't look to the pleasures of this world for our fulfillment, Lord, for they come from you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer coming up, we'd love to pray with you. If you are suffering and, and you need to just weep with those who weep, come on up. We'd love to encourage you. God bless you and have a wonderful week.